Good morning. If you want to take those Bibles out, you can open up to Acts chapter 3. And uh, just as you uh, were encouraged last week to just begin uh, maybe that good discipline of bringing your Bible to church once again. Uh, just desiring to grow in biblical literacy, uh, knowing how to read our Bibles, um, just to study our Bibles. And as you're around here, you get around long enough, we want to teach you how to be interpreting your Bible, how to understand those. And uh, last week, we just kind of prompted you to begin learning even the books of the Bible. We have a slide uh, there uh, that has just kind of a, a cartoon library on the books of the Bible, if you don't mind. Um, and just last week on the uh, Old Testament side, I just encouraged you, maybe begin learning the books of the law. Start off with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That's pretty easy, right? Five things, you know, maybe a, a book a day, Genesis, all day Monday, Genesis, 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 Gen- you know, I think it's Genesis, you know, um, means beginning, you know, and uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, those are the books of the law. We're not going to go through all of these today, but then it kind of just helps when you outline things, when you outline even a book of the Bible, like the book of Romans. Having an understanding of the outline will help you understand the book. And, uh, and so in the Old Testament, you have the law, just five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch. You have uh, the books of history, which just help you know um, the historical uh, story of Israel. And in all of this, everything's going to be pointing to Jesus and man's sin and our fall and our need for a savior and Jesus, the Messiah is coming. But, um, but the historical books are pretty fun to read. They're pretty interesting. They're, it's history, right? Um, and, uh, and then you have, uh, prophets that were raised up during those historical times that spoke towards the sin and the need for a savior and the need to turn away from your sin to that savior. And so you have major prophets, you know, and uh, one way to just remember it, they're the long books, right? They're the long prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, okay? Uh, and then you have the minor prophets. They're just a little shorter, a little quicker. Um, and so it just, that's the Old Testament, okay? And then uh, in the New Testament, you have uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the prophecies concerning Jesus, and uh, you have the Gospels, just four accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and then you have a book of church history, which is where we're at uh, in our sermons now, the book of Acts. And then you have letters to the churches that were all started during the book of Acts. So over the next year or so, we're going to be studying how missionary movements, missionary endeavors went out and started preaching the gospel. People got saved. Churches were started, you know, kind of like ours. And then um, leaderships were raised up within the churches. And then the apostles would write letters to those leaders and how to encourage those churches and exhort those churches. So all of those letters. And then there's what are called pastor letters, you know, First uh, and Second Timothy and um, Titus. Those are written to pastors to encourage them in that ministry. So we just have letters to churches and to pastors and then this uh, final book of prophecy, um, the book of Revelation. So just already wanting to just be encouraging you, 
growing in your understanding of the Bible, biblical literacy. It's much more than just, you know, knowing the books of the Bible, but that helps, you know, just then it doesn't seem like such a giant catalog that you'll never be able to understand. Uh, so we are in the book of Acts today, if you want to flip there, and we are uh, finishing up chapter three, as we saw a wonderful miracle last week of a lame man uh, being healed at the beautiful gates. Remember last week, I encourage you to look at the similarities between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 2, there was a miracle that led to a fantastic preaching opportunity for Peter. And so the miracle was that uh, the day of Pentecost had happened and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church and they began to speak in tongues and speak forth, speak forth the marvelous works of God. And, uh, and when people heard these tongues being spoken, they gathered around and they said, what does this mean? What is this crazy thing that's happening? And so Peter used that as an opportunity to share the prophecies about the day of the Lord and the day of the Holy Spirit and end times. And he preached the gospel to the Jews there in Jerusalem. And then uh, a number of, you know, some couple thousand people were added to Jesus that day and added to a local church that day. And then in chapter three, there's uh, a healing that takes place, a lame man that's 40 years old that had been um, healed from his uh, paralysis and people wondered what was going on and they were astounded that this notable miracle occurred. And so Peter, seeing an opportunity, seized an opportunity and in a just very similar message, preaches the gospel, and, uh, and many are going to be saved out of this. But then this ushers in persecution towards Christian. This begins a period of satanic attack against the early church that goes in chapter 4 and into chapter 5. And so you might just begin to kind of note similarities between chapter um, 3 or chapter 2 and chapter 3. So uh, last week, if you missed the message, get on YouTube, get on our YouTube channel, get on our podcast, listen to that, because we're going to go ahead and move forward here in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, uh, greatly amazed. So this man who had for 40 years never walked, he was always at the same location receiving alms from generous, pious, religious individuals who were going to the temple. Uh, he looked at Peter hoping to receive something, and Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so that lame man rose up immediately. His ankle bones received strength, and he went walking and leaping and praising God and, uh, and then went into the temple with Peter and John and, um, and all these people run together, greatly amazed that this healing had happened. Uh, we see that the location where all these individuals came together was a place called Solomon's Porch. Uh, you know, I love a good porch, don't you? Man, there's something about a nice porch, right? Where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken and a lot of front porch picking, you know? Um, and, uh, 
And, and you know, apparently uh, Jesus loved a porch because he would often preach at Solomon's porch. And the early church would love a good porch. It offered a really great place to proclaim and to herald. And there might have been a little shade there too. We're going to see over the next couple chapters, just Solomon's porch became an incredible amphitheater, an incredible area for ministry and for the preaching of the gospel. Such an incredibly powerful message by Peter is going to be preached and such incredible persecution comes against Peter and John there that uh, they're going to end up being put in prison in chapter four, miraculously and angelically released from prison. And where do they end up back at after they're freed from prison? Back at Solomon's porch, preaching the gospel. They loved a good porch. I mean, you just can't keep some people off of a porch, right? And um, uh, it was this beautiful cluster of, or portico as the NEB Bible says, formed by a double row of marbled columns. I think we might have a picture of it there for you. And it was a roofed with cedar running all along the eastern side of the outer court. And uh, just a beautiful place, Solomon's Porch. When I was a high school pastor, we named our youth group Solomon's Porch. That was the name of our high school group. Um, and sometimes we call it the porch or Solomon's porch. Why would we name a high school ministry Solomon's porch? Seems a little odd, right? Great band name though. If you're ever thinking of, you know, starting a rock band, Solomon's porch, you know, uh, but because our desire was that we would see these young, um, Christians be empowered by the Holy spirit to open up their mouths and to preach the gospel. When the early church, uh, Peter and John were persecuted and they were commanded and forbidden to speak the name of Jesus, Peter's response was, we cannot but help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Can't help but preach Jesus. That was our desire for the high schoolers, that they would remember Solomon's porch and they would be zealous, ardent evangelists. And so as F.F. Bruce says about this moment, uh, after this miracle, he says, the crowd of wondering spectators thronged Peter and John and the recently healed man. And when they reached Solomon's columnade, Peter had a large audience ready to listen to anything that he might say. If the true significance of the healing miracle escaped many of the crowd, as no doubt it did, Peter had an excellent opportunity of bringing it home to them. And the man himself who stuck fast by his two benefactors provided visible confirmation of Peter's message. And so I love that Peter in this moment sees an opportunity and seizes an opportunity. And I believe that that's the same thing that the Lord has provided for you guys. Do you know that in every sphere that you live in, you have people around you and moments in your life where there's an opportunity in front of you for you to open up your mouth and make known the mystery of Jesus. I don't think that's just for select people. I think that's for every Christian who has the Holy Spirit upon them. And, uh, and like Paul, we pray, pray for me that I might open up my mouth and make known the mystery of the gospel. It's often my prayer. I find that when I'm in a situation and I don't know what to say and I don't know how this person's gonna receive the message of Jesus, I find if, if we can just get to this place, If we can just get to that point where we trust the Lord enough that it's not Rory Rogers and all of his personality or whatever that's the power of God unto salvation, but we believe that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ 
That's the power of God unto salvation, and we don't need to be ashamed of it. If we could just pry these two bad boys open, you know, my testimony is that every time he comes through in power, I have had, I've been in such scary times and scary situations and, and just, I mean, this is one of them right now, honestly, if I'm telling you, um, at my dad's funeral when I was 19 years old, all these faces looking at me, just like you are like, what's this 19 year old kid going to say about the death of his dad? I was up all night before, like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know. And I just, I remember getting up there like, I don't know what to, but just say something, say something about Jesus. And he comes through in power and, and we're going to see that with Peter here. Acts chapter three, verse 12. So when Peter saw it, here he is, he's seizing this opportunity. He responds to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? We talked about this last week. We snuck into this verse just to remember that when the Lord does heal somebody, we got to be so fast to bounce the glory to the Lord. It wasn't me that healed this man. It wasn't my piousness or religiosity. I'm not some amazing man or woman. It was the Lord. He showed up. Just yesterday, a man in our church uh, was at the work day and he told me, I came up last week for healing. For years, I've had this pressure and pain in my neck where I can't turn my neck like this without incredible pain. Just this hardworking man that's just always out there laboring. He says, I've been to masseuses and therapists and all these things. Never, and I came up and I would receive prayer from one of the elders last week. And as I was walking to the back row of the church where I was sitting, I felt it begin to loosen up. And all week long, I've been able to turn my neck. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, this wasn't anything to do with Rory or, you know, a a well-outlined message with a good, you know, opening introduction and a thesis statement and a really good conclusion. And then like, this wasn't one of the elders and just, oh man, he did, you know, this is, this was the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the grace of God and we give him glory, you know, and that's what Peter did. He said, don't look at me like I'm some kind of amazing person. This is all about Jesus. And so what Peter does here is what every pastor has the obligation to do. And it is to keep his messages Christ-centered. Okay. It's what we call Christ-centered preaching. And there's actually a method to it. And the method basically is go to the Bible, stick to the Bible and let the Bible provide your scaffolding and your outline for your sermon, okay? And uh, and so Peter, he goes to the Bible. He's gonna be giving us in this next section the prophets. He's gonna show that Jesus is prophet, priest, king, and that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures and he keeps this Christ-centered. It's nothing about Peter from this point on. It's nothing about a lame man healed from this. It's about Jesus, okay? And just my prayer this morning was like, Lord, just let him walk out of here with Jesus, Jesus, nothing but Jesus, okay? Um, so Acts 3.13 says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So Peter's sermon in chapter two on Pentec- at the day of Pentecost revealed the messiahship of jesus but now he preaches from the torah remember those five books of the bible and he's going to call the jews to repentance as he refers to the god of abraham isaac and jacob he's reminding them that the jews god would glorify the jesus whom they denied 
So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified the Jesus that the Jews denied. It says that Pilate was determined to let him go. That speaks of that Pilate, this governor over Judea, the Roman authority of the area, had made his judgment and was pronouncing him as innocent. This Jesus is not worthy of death. That was Pilate's conclusion, but they denied Jesus. You might notice there at the end of verse 13, that word denied. And then as you go into verse 14, again, that word you denied, you denied him, you denied him. Now, just as in chapter two, verse 42, we had a word for the week and it wasn't on purpose, but it was that word assiduously. And we kind of laughed. You remember how much we use that word assiduously? The early church gave themselves assiduously and continually to the Bible and to prayer and to fellowship. You guys are like, I don't remember that. It's okay. Just forget I said any of that. Well, in my studies today, a word kept coming up and it was the word repudiated repudiated. Okay. So new vocab word for you guys, feel free to write it down and to just use it in every conversation that you have. When we speak of the denial of the Jews of Jesus, we speak of repudiation that they disowned him. They disowned him, you know, and, and they refused to agree with Jesus. They basically said no to Jesus, didn't want to be associated with Jesus. It speaks of that. They renounced Jesus forswear Jesus, give up on Jesus, and turn their back on Jesus. They repudiated Jesus, okay? Pilate said, let him go. He's, he's, he's innocent, and yet you de- denied him and ended up delivering him up to death. And then move on to verse 14. But you denied him the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now, lest we miss a really important point that I have in purple in my notes, um, says something to me, okay, my brain, right? Look back at the first part of 3.13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, what did he do to Jesus? What did God do to Jesus? He glorified Jesus, magnified Jesus. Behold, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. He vindicated his son, Jesus, when he rose him from the dead. This is what the father of your fathers has done. And you denied him, you delivered him up, you repudiated him. And Peter, you guys, this is all foot in the mouth, Peter. This is denying Jesus three times in front of servants uh, outside of Caiaphas' house. And now he's super bold and super blunt. And he just says, you denied him. This is repeated emphasis on the Jews' sin. When the Roman governor was disposed to discharge Jesus, you spoke against Jesus. Now check out Peter's titles of Jesus here. They are messianic terms. And messianic, Messiah, is a word that's used to speak of the hero of Israel, okay? The champion of Israel. You guys all have a hero. You love certain people that just came and rescued others. You know, just we've, we've got our heroes, right? And the Jews had Messiah. He was coming. We don't know exactly what he's, you know, what his name is, but he's coming. We know the family line that he's gonna come through. We know what it's gonna be like when he comes. And someday he's coming. He's gonna save us. He's gonna be our champion. He's gonna be our hero. And Peter's telling him, yeah, it's Jesus, okay? And he uses words 
that are messianic or messianic to make them think, wait a minute, you're telling me that the guy that we denied and repudiated was the hero of heaven? Okay, and he uses a couple words to point them to that. It's been called a cluster of significant titles, okay? I like a good granola cluster. I'm like, oh, there was a cluster in that yogurt. Right? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, so here's a couple clusters of significant terms. His servant is a messianic title, okay? It speaks of a son and a servant to a king. Isaiah tells us that he's the sin-bearing servant who takes our sin, that he serves us and put our needs before his own. It's the example that we now have in all of our relationships are also to be a servant just as our Messiah, our Savior, was a servant. Then we have a word, a phrase, the Holy One, hagias in the Greek, speaking of this one who's to come was sacred, very special, blameless, ceremonially consecrated and set apart. The term holy one is used more than 40 times in the Old Testament. And it's a high and glorious title for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So when Peter speaks of the holy one that you delivered up and killed, he's telling them, you killed God. All right. You done killed God. You done killed the Messiah that we've been waiting for, for the last 4,000 years. So slow clap for you, right? No bueno. This is not a good thing that you've, you've gone and done. And I love that um, the songs that they chose, these, these two guys that were right here singing today, do you know that they were here all day yesterday laboring here at the church and running the construction projects? Just, and then somehow they're throwing together a worship set. And I'm just listening. I'm like, these songs just go right in with Peter's sermon. And the one that we sang, he who was and is to come is the one who lives in me, the great I am, Yahweh, like the messianic, the holy one and the just is Jesus, all right? Uh, he uses a twofold designation, which is rooted in Old Testament language. And he says, you refuse to acknowledge him as your divinely appointed king and savior, the holy one and the just, the king and the savior. Or as when Chris preached it back in Acts chapter two, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. I love those two phrases, Lord and Christ or Christos and curios two greek words christos and curios now many of us love that he's christ our savior the savior of our sins we love that don't we thank you for saving me of our sins thank you for being my savior but many of us and especially in america we don't love that he's also curios okay that he's also lord that he's been made to be the master of our lives, that we ought to bow our knee to him and now become his servant, servants as he's been our servant. And so many people, we love the benefits of salvation, but we hate the thought that he demands our life, our soul, our all. And, and so even in this passage, Peter is telling the Jews, you know, when you killed the holy one and the just, 
you killed the one that was coming to be your savior and your king. He goes on to say, you, in verse 15, you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? It's like plastic glasses, you know? Uh, killed the prince of life. How do you do that? The prince of life wasn't though able to be held by death. He will be raised from it. But as John Stott says, you killed the author of life. This pioneer of giving life. He's the author of life. He's the pioneer of life. He's the prince of life. Some of your translations may see he's the source of life or the originator of life. And guys, by the way, salvation is life. Salvation in Jesus's life. When we're preaching Jesus's salvation, we're preaching life to the world. Here is this deliberate antithesis to you killed him, but don't worry, he's the author of life. Walter Wink said, killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head, okay? It only ended up bringing life to the whole entire world. In verse 16 of our text says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so there's this uh, quick reference back to the healing of this guy, but not to glorify this guy or even focus on this guy, but to focus on the God who produced the healing of this man. And so uh, it was through faith in his name. If you were a Jew, you would have this Semitic thought that understood uh, the power and the person and his presence were available through his name. In that name spoke of his authority. And it was by believing in that name. And by the way, it wasn't so much the lame dude's faith because he was just sitting there like, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, alms for the what, you know, it, you know, you see it was more Peter's faith stepping out and saying in the name of Jesus, that was the first time I've heard of this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you know, Peter was stepping out in faith and praying for the healing, this to the God who gives the gift of wonder working faith. He's made this man strong now, had perfect soundness now. This wasn't a sort of healing or a pseudo miracle. This was a, a, a miracle of integrity and of wholeness. And this individual now had perfect soundness. Now move on in Acts 3.17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And so, man... This is really a, a picture of the grace and mercy of God that in this sermon, I mean, he just was telling them, you denied and repudiated Jesus two times. I mean, he is just confrontational in his sermon. And by the way, love confronts, all right? And the gospel confronts. And here Peter does it, just to the very people that crucified Jesus. He is confronting them, telling them that they denied Jesus, that they killed Jesus, the Holy One, the just, the Savior, the Messiah. You killed him. And now there's just this little moment for them of, of, of just understanding and compassion. I know that you did it in ignorance. And no one really gets all puffed up in that. Do that. Yeah, I was ignorant. You know, uh, I know that you were ignorant when you did it, but you still did it. 
There's a moment of grace right now where mercy is being preached to you. I know that you did it in ignorance. Even the leaders did it in ignorance. Also your rulers. Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, well, let's, let's pause there for a second. Um, we remember that Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We know in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, as Paul is preaching in Athens, he says, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked. And so it, there might be a temptation there, maybe for you like, yeah, I've only been ignorant. I've, been, I've only been doing the things that I've been doing because I'm an ignoramus, you know? And it's like, okay, well, hold on. It doesn't stop there, okay? So now that we understand that you're ignorant and I'm, you know, trust me, you're like, okay, uh, it goes on to say, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. All right, that's Acts to Athens, okay? Uh, so whether you're in Jerusalem on the day at the beautiful gate or whether you're in Athens in the day that Paul is preaching to you or whether you're here in 2021, or I guess it's 2022, Prineville, uh, like, okay, we're in this moment of grace where we can realize we done messed up, okay? We've sinned. There was ignorance, perhaps, in what we've done. But today's the day of salvation. Today's the day where God is calling you to repent, okay? Uh, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And how do we know that? He's confirmed it by raising Jesus from the dead. So there will be a day of judgment. And so ignorance is not an excuse but it's an opportunity to see the grace of God that today is a day of salvation given to us and we're given an opportunity to repent. John Stott said, neither their ignorance nor God's predictions exonerated them. However, they must repent and turn to God and then three successive blessings will take place to them. So we'll see those successive blessings in a little bit. Look at verse 18 of our text. <clears throat> Then those things, or rather, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. So I, I put a gold star next to this verse in my notes. It's a really beautiful, shining verse in this sermon. Because even though we've done it in ignorance, today we're called to repent because God will judge sinners. So repent and be converted. So there's a couple actions that a sermon like Peter's should lead to. And then there's successive blessings that flow from those actions. Action number one, repent. Okay? If you'll take a moment and zoom in on your life, Maybe right now you've been out at like a 30,000 foot view and you're thinking about all the other people in the world that need to repent. You're thinking about, you know, our government. Yeah, they need to repent. You're thinking about the perverts. They need to repent. You know, thinking about people that have hurt children. They need to repent. You know, you're thinking about just drunk drivers, DUIs. Oh, they need to repent. You know, you just like, we are so pharisaical, you know, in our judgment on others. Yeah, ew, gross. Oh, jerks. Oh, so scoundrels, you know, and just like, ah, and you know what? Bring it on home to you. Put your name in there. And that's a hard thing to do. That takes humility. My pride in me is like, Rory Rogers. Oh, Rory. 
born to Russell and Cindy Rogers, 1981, on a ranch and family, hard workers. Oh man, that kid looked good with a bowl cut and high water jeans with white sneakers on and innocent, really innocent to this. You know, like no, Rory Rogers has the kernel of sin deep within his heart. And though externally there may be so much cuteness and purity in him, from the day he was born, wicked, selfish, cursing his sisters, cursing the kids on the playground, venom on my lips, all right? Like wicked man, this Rory Rogers, going to hell, all right? Needing a savior. And you guys, you have to come to terms with your spiritual bankruptcy. You, put your name in there. I'm doing it, Rory Rogers, the wrath of God is upon him, but Jesus and his mercy. And you have to come in humility before the Lord and realize you're a sinner and his wrath's upon you. And when you do, that's the first step of of repenting. Of repenting, repent. It means to change your ignorant mind about who Jesus is. It's to change your ignorant mind about what sin is. In Acts 26, Paul says, oh, that they should repent and turn to God. That's what repenting is. And then you then do for uh, works fitting repentance. Or as 2 Corinthians tells us, godly sorrow produces repentance. And if you take that moment and you center it in on yourself, you put the target on your own heart and you realize I'm not just a goody two shoes kid. I don't even know what that means. Goody two shoes kid. You know what I mean? I'm not all that in a bag of potato chips. Like I have sinned against God. I did it ignorantly, maybe, but I also did it whatever the opposite of ignorantly is like purposefully, right? Um, yes, I had it brought down from great grandpa, Adam from the garden. Yeah, I've got that inherited sin. But then you know what I went on ahead and did? I agreed with Adam from the garden by adding to my account more sin. I know better than you, God. I want this more than I want you, God. I'm gonna do it my way. Maybe on Sunday I'll come back to you, but I will do it my way. And I added to my account sin, sin, sin. And only when we realize I did that to God will our heart begin to go towards godly sorrow. And as I say this, guys, this is all work also and mostly and primarily of the Holy Spirit who begins to work this in your heart. Even right now, you can say, Holy Spirit, do that in me that I would have godly sorrow that brings repentance. And then when you do, you repent, you can also convert. See that in our Shining Star verse, Acts three nineteen. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Converted means to turn back and to change beliefs. When I was a freshman in high school, my friends and I were just telling people about Jesus at school all the time. And there was this kind of grunge, dark group of kids just always wearing all black and just painting their faces just with dark eyeliner and just, you know, the hair down over their face and just, uh, and, uh, and me and my buddy were like, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, ever, Jesus loves you. And we were in uh, lunch line to get a good old homemade roll and dip in nacho cheese, I remember it. And we're there and we're like, let's tell these guys about Jesus. We start telling these kids about Jesus and we were 
responded with being spit in the face. And they said, stop trying to convert us. And I was like, we're, you know, we are, we're trying to convert you. We want you to be changed on the inside. You can keep wearing all black. That's totally cool. You can, I mean, if you want to put eyeliner on, but whatever, like maybe you got a cultural thing going on there, but we want your heart to be converted. We want you to be turned to the light to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said the sinner and hell are married, but repentance proclaims divorce. The sinner and hell are married, but the repentance, uh, but repentance proclaims divorce. We'll have the worship team come up and we'll see as they're coming up three results of repentance. Number one, your sins will be blotted out. I love that phrase. Blotted out, washed away, wiped away, literally obliterated, wiped out. Think dry erase board just with all of your sins written on it. And then you just take that eraser and you just wipe it off, blot it off. Back in the day, that's the letters written on papyrus. They didn't have acid in the ink to sink into the papyrus and they could just wipe off the ink. That's the language here. You guys know your sins. You know what you've done. But that account before the Lord can be blotted out. Or as Colossians says, the handwriting of requirements that were against you have been nailed to the cross. Blotted out, forgotten, remembered no more. What else happens when we repent and convert? Times of refreshing flow from the presence of the Lord. The language of this times of refreshing, and don't we love a good time of refreshing after a workout or after a hard day's work or in the middle of the summer heat and you stop and you glug the water and you sit in the shade for a moment, you catch your breath, recovery of breath, That's what the Lord does to us when we come to him. And right now, maybe you've had the breath pushed out of your lungs. You're not living in a time of refreshment because you're not living with the Lord. And your guilt of your sin is still upon you. Something that happens then is that not only do we have our sins blotted out and times of refreshing come, but Jesus Christ in verse 20 will be sent to you. He may send Jesus Christ who was preached before you. The second coming is what ultimately they were looking for. The one who would come back and restore all things. Verse 21 says, heaven must receive Jesus until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his prophets since the world began. Jesus is kind of like the old school terminator you know he says i'll be back i'm the regenerator you know he's gonna come back he's gonna regenerate oh thanks for laughing at that i was like should i half the world doesn't know who the terminator is i never even saw the movie but i'll be back right all of this considerable thinking about jesus that peter does is prompting the jews towards those times of repentance Fresh life coming through them. 22 and 23, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, whom you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, do. And it shall be that every soul who's not, that does not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow. Remember our bookshelf we showed at the beginning? The prophets 
um, the historical books, as many as have spoken, foretold these days, the days of Jesus. You are all sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So to you Jews first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Will you guys stand with me uh, today as we close? And as we close, God wants to do this work in you. You know, the story of Acts will go on that the Jews, as they continue to hear this message, they're going to reject Jesus. And so then the missionaries begin to go out to the non-Jews, which really it's, it's a lot of us, you know, and praise the Lord. They kept going and they came all the way to Oregon. They started telling people here about Jesus so that we might know our sin, be honest about it, have godly sorrow about it, turn our, turn our minds from it, let the Lord have his way in us and convert us. And then out of that will flow times of refreshment. And I ask you today, before you spit in my face, have you been converted? Have you been converted? Such an important piece to all of this, really the piece. It's not about how, how religious can you make yourself look? How much of a good person can you appear to be on the outside? What kind of family were you brought up in? What's your pedigree? None of that. It's have you realized that you are bankrupt? And have you come to Jesus for the clearing of your debt and then the pouring in of righteousness? You see, Jesus doesn't just put us at a zero balance again, but then he gives us righteousness so that we're rich in righteousness. Have you been converted from bankruptcy to righteousness? Don't try to do anything else regarding church or religion or piety or generosity. Don't do anything else until you've been converted. And today is the day for that. Right now where you're at, pray with me if that's you. Lord Jesus, I'm hearing about my sin. I'm hearing that I'm bringing it close to home today, that I, state your name, have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and the wrath of God is upon me apart from Jesus. But I'm hearing today, Lord, that you forgive sinners, that you restore righteousness and that you will bring times of refreshing into my life and into my soul. And so Lord, Jesus, be my savior, be my Lord. And Lord, you know this soul, it needs breath restored in its lungs. If you've prayed that prayer, and for those of us that we have lived in that, let's rejoice in Jesus as uh, Adam closes us and Clay closes us in song, Aaron. Amen. If you prayed a prayer of repentance today to live for Jesus, to receive his salvation, come talk to myself. Uh, come talk to one of these people up on the stage. If you recognize Chris from communion today, if you know an elder, Ken, or uh, just come speak to us. Or, uh, you know, if you were converted today, 
we're not just in the business of making converts, okay? We are about the business of making followers of Jesus. And so we want to help put you on that path. So uh, just come and share with us what the Lord's done in your heart. So, and stick around for a little bit. We've got about 45 minutes of Fireside Fellowship time, donuts here for you guys, coffee, meet some folks, and I uh, hope you'll stick around. Uh, but go grab your kids first before you do. God bless you guys.